Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. Born of the house parties in the Bronx in the 1970s, hip-hop has since become one of America's most important cultural exports. It's not just entered, but defined the mainstream. Early pioneers like Grandmaster Flash helped hip-hop make a name for itself, and a new book of photography, Yo! The Early Days of Hip-Hop 1982-84, documents that rise. Sophie Bramley's photography takes us into the parties, neighbourhoods and backstage during a pivotal moment for the genre. Throughout the 80s and 90s, innovators developed the genre's sound, while competition between East and West Coast labels led to moments of ugly violence. Tupac and Biggie, R.I.P. Meanwhile, a producer lay waiting in the wings for his own time to shine as a rapper. Kanye West is the focus of a new three-part documentary directed by Chike and Kudi. Genius, not spelt as you might imagine, charts the rise of the Chicago native and the seismic contribution he's made to music. The role of hip-hop in American culture is hard to overplay, but how much has this changed over the years? How has the genre evolved and who's been pulling those strings? Now that hip-hop seemingly has taken over the world, where does it go from here? here. Just a few unambitious questions there and I'm joined today to try to answer them by Kalefa Sane, a staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. Kalefa, um, it's lovely to have you on the programme. Great to go straight straight to the brain's trust on this one. Not an unambitious subject to go from 1982 to the, the enigma wrapped inside the nemesis that is Kanye West. But I want to start off, hopefully, with a little bit of an easier one for you, Kalefa. Your intro to hip hop. You've written brilliantly in The New Yorker about, about your dipping your toe in the waters of music as a punk rock fan back in the day, which yeah, you still are. It actually came first. So some of the first music I loved was 80s hip hop, Run DMC, Curtis Blow, Beastie Boys. But it didn't seem like a radical culture because I was too young to know how radical it was. It was just the music that all of the kids in, in my little school and outside of Boston were listening to. Those were the cassettes that everyone had. And if you're a, you know, if you're a not particularly mature eight or nine or ten year old boy in the 1980s, you're like, this is the genre for me. This is fun. It's hilarious. It's fun to memorize these raps. So when I first heard hip hop, it seemed like normal music. A few years after that, Yo! MTV Raps started broadcasting on MTV. A couple years after that, you know, the rise of The Chronic and Snoop Dogg, whom we just saw at the Super Bowl <laughs> halftime show. Bless and, him, yeah. And this was just huge mainstream popular culture, especially in the U.S. So... In high school, when I kind of got excited about music, was what I was excited about was the other stuff, was punk rock and the idea of like, oh, I found something really different, really radical, both some of the old punk stuff and some of the newer punk rock stuff that was happening in the early 90s. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I kind of circled back and fell back in love with hip hop again after having loved punk and, and now being able to hear how radical hip hop was, how strange it was, how audacious it was, and uh, basically sort of have been inhaling hip hop ever since. That's a beautiful answer. There was a moment where it was more kind of, I guess, transgressive to be into punk than it was to be into to hip hop and rap because at the time that you were dipping your toes into music in the mid to late 80s or whatever, it was kind of mainstream and it was funny and the rhymes were rude and you could kind of swap them with your buddies, right? 
Well, well, see, that's always been the thing about hip-hop. The, the music is so charismatic. Right from the start, it captured people's imagination. And now, depending on how you measure, it's maybe the most popular form of music in the world. Certainly, probably the most popular form of music in America. But it's still kind of undigested. It still sort of sits in the mainstream, but hasn't quite been digested into mainstream pop music. By which I mean, you know, when you look at these rappers who played the Super Bowl, even now, Snoop Dogg has been a star for, for more than 30 years, and yet there's still some controversy. What's he saying about the police? Is he wearing a color that's associated with a gang in L.A., right? And so there is this idea that the brilliant thing that hip-hop does is it gets huge hugely popular and yet remains very much itself. I mean, I think people forget the first number one hip-hop hit in America was Rapture by Blondie, right? This white kind of punkish pop group. And I think a lot of people thought maybe that's going to be the trajectory. This music that's born in the Bronx, you know, maybe within a decade, white people discover it and it just becomes this novelty music. Or it turns into what is perceived as white music, which is what happened to rock and roll. And one of the interesting things about hip-hop is the extent to which that actually hasn't happened. It's exactly that. I mean, Fab Five Freddy was name-checked by Debbie Harry on that, on that single, on that hit. But it was kind of every white person's first first kind of, I don't know, kind of bashing their, their face on the glass window of hip hop, I suppose. But it was kind of a it was it was maybe it was still that there. Maybe there was a grill up on that window and, 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 it, and it didn't uh, kind of it wasn't an easy thing to look through, I suppose. It takes us back that neighborhood. And your mentioning of, of that takes us back to the book that we name checked in our introduction, Khalifa. Um, Yo, the early days of hip hop. This is this is Sophie Bramley's kind of amazing book. She was she's a. a a French Tunisian uh, a photographer. She she kind of it kind of completely immersed herself in the kind of parties and the neighborhoods and the and 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 all the rest of it um, in the early days. There, um, you kind of really get a, a kind of whiff of the the kind of homemade nature and the power and the kind of charm and kind of innocence to a certain extent of the genre in those early days. How did that hit you as someone that's that's written about it both personally and professionally? Well, I mean, like anyone who loves hip-hop, I just can't get enough of these pictures. And I think it's not a coincidence um, sometimes that the people who can see the genre most clearly when it's first emerging and who really are able to celebrate it sometimes are people from outside America, right? In America, it's kind of like, you know, maybe taken for granted or a lot of people even in New York didn't quite know, you know, how special this music was. Um, it, it, it's interesting, the introduction to the book is written by Bill Adler, who's a, a famous guy from the hip-hop scene. He was the publicist for Def Jam Records in the 1980s. And also when I moved to New York in 19. 1999, he was my office mate. He basically sublet me a desk in his office. So we spent years working uh, side by side. And, and so he had, you know, he knew, knows all these people and he had some of these amazing stories and other people would come to visit. Hip hop pioneers would stop by the office. So um, in, in that sense, the, the book kind of brings me back to those days when I was getting an education in those early days, which often aren't really preserved, right? One of the interesting things about hip hop is hip hop is a party before it's really a genre. And in those early years, one of the things that people tried to figure out was like, how do you record this stuff? 
you know, in the early days, hip hop revolves around DJs playing records so people can dance. And so there was this idea of like, well, how do you make a record out of someone playing records? And it took a couple of years, right? The early, some of the early rap records, you mentioned Grandmaster Flash um, and the Furious Five had this pioneering hip hop single called The Message. And the thing about The Message is, as far as we can tell, Grandmaster Flash isn't really on it. Because he was a DJ, and the message is rapping over a beat. As far as we know, he didn't really make the beat. And, and so th that captures some of the awkwardness of those early years of how do you turn a party into music? And, and, and what, what happened, of course, was that, you know, in this whole world of, of graffiti writers and break dancers, b-boys, as they were sometimes called, and DJs, you know, one figure ends up coming to the front and, and emerging as the, 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 the focus of all this attention, and that's the rapper. Yeah, but it's it's a funny one, as you say, because it was it was sort of so homemade. It was kind of music that would that was falling apart before it had been kind of put onto a master tape or or the vinyl was cut. Right, it was a sort of fly by night genre that, as you said, was associated with big Saturday nights at the Roxy and with amazing break dancing and with with the party. So to try to fuse that, to try to sort of I guess codify and monetize that was kind of became a became the thing, became the desire, and obviously you know the likes of the likes of Puff Daddy, Jay-Z and Kanye, who we're going to come on to later, have obviously done that to a, you know, Rockefeller Records and all the rest of it have done that to the nth degree. But uh, I guess it was all about all about that show. And I want to just ask you also, I mean, we're talking in the first half of this show about this wonderful photography book. The looks are amazing. Like, it, oh my gosh, there's yeah. a lot of kind of Bootsy Collins kind of vibe straying into the early 1980s. A lot of kind of funk, kind of parliament kind of look, you know, like Fab Five Freddy, African Bambata, you know, the costumes are amazing, right? Well, yeah, you're coming out of the disco era. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about hip hop is there is this kind of mixed feelings that people had about disco, right? In some ways, it's like, oh, it's going to be the anti-disco. It's, you know, we're not, we're not welcome maybe at the discos downtown, so we're going to do our things uptown. But that said, you had, you know, Disco Wiz, the Brothers Disco, the Disco 3. You had, you had groups that are named after disco. You had groups sometimes using disco riffs, right? The first, the first hip-hop single, by many accounts, is the Sugar Hill Gang, which was kind of a fake hip-hop group, but they borrowed a groove from Chic, right? Classic disco act. Disco Fever is an important club in the, in the... And there's a great picture of that in the book, and that's an important club in the development of hip-hop. So it's an, partly an extension of disco. Disco, both in the sense that it's DJs manipulating records and DJs using the turntable as an instrument, but also in the look and the idea that it starts really glamorous and then people have, you know, with, with bright fabrics, tight fabrics, uh, and then people, people have to figure out what are we going to do? Are we going to dress up or are we going to dress kind of a more downtown bohemian look like the great Fab Five Freddy. And for people who were, weren't lucky enough, right? <laughs> people like me who weren't lucky enough to be going to these amazing, amazing um, parties in the Bronx. For a lot of people, Run DMC was a, an important change because Run DMC comes out and they're not dressed up as if they're trying to get into Studio 54, right? Run DMC comes out and they're, they really spread that look, right? No Calvin Klein just wearing Lees, right? And they're just gonna wear jeans and DMC's got these big chunky glasses. They're gonna put on some hats. They're gonna wear their Adidas sneakers and it's gonna be, you know, for lack of a better word, it's gonna be kind of street. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful to see that style 
not change. It doesn't kind of change overnight or year to year. It kind of is a slow osmosis, as you say, from the likes of kind of DJ Cool Herc and, and African Bambata to Chuck D and, and Public Enemy. What you might call, and I know you've name checked this, you've used this phrase in a, in a wonderful long read you did for The Guardian, kind of conscious hip hop or progressive hip hop, hip hop about stuff. And, and obviously the message, Grandmaster Flash, the message was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm close to the edge. You know, this was living up poor and black in the Bronx, right? It was never not thus, although a lot of it was also a lot of fun, I suppose. Don't push me, call, I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Yeah, the, the story of the message is interesting because it's not like this is what every this is what's happening in the clubs. This is this is a, a woman who owns a record label who says like, oh, I want you to write something sort of like this, and then she brings in an outside person to do some of the writing. So there there was something a little bit I don't want to say fake about the message, but the message was not representative of what hip hop generally sounded like at that time. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's not a garbled message. It's it's one of the greatest songs, but it's always interesting to know the genesis of of some of this stuff that seems so real, right? or purports to be so real. We talked about that, uh, the sort of osmosis in, in the style and the fashion and how some of that was borne out in the lyrical concerns of, of, of hip-hop and rap, Khalifa. I wanted to ask you also about the differences between East Coast and West Coast rap. And we, I kind of name-checked Biggie and Tupac and some of the violence that happened as well because of these warring gangs, tribes, belief systems, labels, and all the rest of it. Is there any way in which we could get a, a sort of precis of, of this? Because it's such a knotty, a knotty problem, right? East Coast versus West Coast. I mean, one of the things you see in the book is hip hop as a local phenomenon, right? The idea of like, I'm going to a party in the neighborhood with my friends. And one of the great joys of hip hop is that so much of it sounds like people are rapping for the benefit of their friends. It sounds like you're eavesdropping on someone else's internal conversation. They're not going to dumb down their slang for you. They're going to talk the way they talk. And so in, in that sense, it's often been intensely local music. And after it it arises in, in New York, it spawns scenes all over the country and, and all over the world. And what, you know, one of the famous, one, one of the things that happens is that there is this moment after NWA emerges at the end of the 1980s when the real center of gravity moves west to, to LA. And so around, in this crew around Dr. Dre and Ice Cube and obviously Snoop Dogg, you have making these huge records that are mo both tougher than what had come before in terms of like more menacing, but also more accessible. And, and the idea that those things would go together, that you could sell millions and millions of records without having to kind of do something that's sort of soft and kind of very pop sounding was a real revelation. And, and between that, yes, you did get this tension between Tupac and Biggie, which is sometimes talked about as a coastal rivalry, or a, certainly it's a rivalry between two kind of groups of stars. That said, the murders of both Tupac and Biggie are unsolved. So we don't actually know why they were killed and the, to what extent that killing had to do with an East Coast, West Coast thing or had to do with a battle or a feud. But I think the story of feuding in hip hop, feuding has often played a big role in hip hop 
precisely because rapping sounds so much like talking. And because rapping sounds a lot like talking, rappers are always trying to find ways to justify who they are and what they're doing. What gives them the right to talk to you? Who do you think you are? So unlike singers, rappers often start by telling you their name, right? I am so-and-so and I've come to do such-and-such, right? The way, the way you would do if someone handed you a microphone at a party and you were going to give a speech. And that self-consciousness, that sense of, I have to make myself believable, I have to make myself credible so you'll take me seriously, I think that has often been part of the genre. So this is the kind of ego quotient, you know, which is is kind of sort of center stage, as you say, with a lot of MCs and, and rappers. They're having to announce themselves and tell you that they're going to tell you the truth. They're dishing the dirt. It's their way or the highway, right? Or just that they're worth listening to. Yeah. You should pay yeah. attention to them and believe them. And and singers don't tend to do that, right? If you're going to croon a love song, you don't usually spend the first two verses explaining your credentials to sing a love song. <laughs> well, you know, each to their own, Khalifa. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's considered bad manners but we've, we've all been there um <laughs> although i was gonna say in the in the emo movement in the 2000s you actually heard a lot of like very self-conscious love songs that were all about who am i to be singing a love song so yes you do see that in other genres but it's a real specialty in hip-hop <laughs> i kind of feel like we've gotten to kanye before we kind of meant to but let's go there because these two worlds i mean as i say it was it's a, it's a tough ask to sort of get from 1982 to kanye west but as you say, you know, this, this, everything exploded, kind of put it on NWA at the end of the 80s and, and, you know, explosion of small scenes across the United States and across the world. Kanye West grew up in Chicago and felt he needed to get to New York City where the labels were to kind of make a name for himself. Now, this new documentary, Genius, on Netflix, it's a really, I mean, I've, the, the first episode of it is such a down-to-earth, heartening. I had no idea that Kanye West was such a slightly goofy, humble, and clearly automatically and immediately brilliant young man. I mean, he's considered to be such a kind of egomaniac these days. I feel terrible saying that, having said that for years, when I look at this footage of him shot by his buddy. And as I say, yeah, he's, he's, were you surprised seeing that, that maybe not as, a, as an authority on, on this subject, uh, Khalifa, but the rawness of his talent back then, which might be unchanged, but the level of his kind of humility and cuteness somehow. No, I mean, I remember that era. I remember going to SOB's, a little club here in New York, and seeing him back when he was a producer and he was trying to get a little more attention as a rapper. And yeah, he was he was a brilliant producer and he had a real vision for what he wanted to do. And he wrote these hilarious and wise and memorable lyrics. And, and, and sometimes he was still trying to exactly figure out how to fit those lyrics onto the beat. But there was always a sense that he had something to say and had a real musical vision. The other thing that really comes across in part one of this documentary is the sense that in the early 2000s, the idea that there was this dichotomy in hip-hop, that there was the world of popular hip-hop, which was flashy and tough and glamorous 
and popular and that was on the radio. And then there was this other kind of more underground, earnest world of hip hop that was less flashy and maybe more idealistic and that generally wasn't on the radio. And you know, that's a simplification and I, I certainly am someone who enjoys all kinds of hip hop, very much including the, the flashiest and the toughest kind. But so Kanye had a, a sense of himself as being between these two worlds, right? He calls himself the first N-word with a Benz and a backpack on, on his first album. And in that phrase, you know, it sounds, if you don't know that world, you might kind of skip right over that. But backpack is, you know, shorthand for what people call backpack rap or backpackers. The idea of people who were kind of earnest, idealistic, and they wore these big backpacks and they'd get together in ciphers and they'd, they'd recite their rhymes, right? Whereas the Benz represents the person on MTV. TV. And, and similarly, when Kanye makes it to MTV and you see Gideon Diego in this documentary doing a little, little feature on Kanye as an up-and-coming artist, uh, Gideon says, is there room for a self-proclaimed backpack rapper in Rockefeller's Bentley hit parade? And I love that quote because it's like he's speaking in code. It's like, so backpack rapper, we know what that means. Rockefeller is Jay-Z's label. Bentley's hit parade, the uh, Bentley hit parade, the idea is that, that Jay-Z's music and the music associated with Rockefeller is associated with big money and flashy living. And, and so like Kanye really liked thinking of himself as being somewhere in between those two, right? That he says, I'm gonna be one of them people that help bridge the gap with hip hop in the documentary. And so there was a lot of people talking like that. The difference was that Kanye was able to make really compelling music and do things that other people couldn't do. He was able to make music that was partly because it was so self-conscious, as, as he would put it, that, where he was always acknowledging his own flaws and foibles and struggles and difficulties, and he would, he would say that he was the best and then turn around and talk about his anxiety. And, you know, there's this amazing scene in the documentary where he's rapping the first verse of Family Business, a song from the end of his first album, and he's rapping it to Scarface, who's this incredible pipe from the Ghetto Boys, incredible pioneer of gangster rap, one of the great hip-hop lyricists and to just see them side by side and Kanye's reciting this rhyme about you know family tension just an amazing moment and it shows him doing something that someone else couldn't do and this is for the family that can't be with us and this is for my cousin locked down all the answers and this is why I spit it in my song so sweet like a photo where your granny's pitching that at you gone and hit us super hard on Thanksgiving and Christmas this can't be right yeah, you heard I remember that scene in the documentary as well and it's so tender because then he turns around to me he says he does family business he does this rap and Scarface turns around to me he goes anyway what, what's that on the table what's that on the table and he goes oh that's my uh, that's my retainers <laughs> and he's got as we call them in England braces for your teeth right and he's he's a guy he's a slightly goofy guy in a, in a kind of rugby shirt or a polo shirt and he's taking his retainers out he does this incredible rap this kind of legend of the form has just kind of you know, he's left him speechless almost. And then he's like, what's that on the desk? <laughs> it's his braces. It's a, it's a very, very tender moment, I thought. And that's significant because his breakthrough song was Through the Wire, which was about being in a car crash and then having your jaw wired shut. And, and you know, maybe that also affected his rapping voice as well, the fact that he had his jaw basically reconstructed. So yes, there is, like any superhero origin tale, there is this idea of great injury and great vulnerability giving rise to great strength and power. 
He's a really important and influential figure. He often hasn't been in a given year the person who has the biggest hits, who's making the biggest blockbusters, right? But he is the person that everyone kind of agrees and says, like, that guy's a genius. Like, those records are incredible. He's set multiple trends. And, you know, long before, you know, Young Thug was making a record like Punk, Kanye was doing 808s and Heartbreaks. And people were saying, like, what, what is this? You're, you're a rapper and you're making this kind of auto-tune record that's all about romantic disappointment. Like, what's happening here? And that was years before that became, like, a cool thing to do in hip-hop. So I think, I think his main thing is, isn't even so much the popularity, although he's hugely popular, it's that he is so widely viewed, I think, and rightly so, as a visionary in music, also in fashion for that matter, but also in music. He's reinvented himself multiple times and often kind of pointed the way in that hip-hop can evolve. He was kind of an old-fashioned stock made good, it seemed, and that seems to bear itself out in some of the dichotomies that he finds himself in when he's telling everyone he's a genius, but kind of being a little shy about it at the same time. Did you did you pick up on that? Yeah, I mean when he's when he's hanging around in the Island Def Jam offices and he's going around to different people's offices to try and play them his single Jesus Walks. That's amazing that scene when he's rapping to the the, the, the secretaries and stuff and they're just like doing some typing. <laughs> and yeah, they're interested and they're listening, but they also have other stuff they have to do. And you know, again, part of that, there's parts of that that aren't that unusual, right? Like every rapper has a story of like going around and trying to get on. If anything, Kanye was better connected than most aspiring rappers, right? Because at that point, he's already like, because he's also a producer, he's made beats for Jay-Z and he has relationships with all these heavy hitters in the hip hop world. So, you know, it's not that it's not that he necessarily had it harder, but he had you, you see him you part of what it is is he's trying to change roles, right? Everyone's looking at him as a producer. And in in hip hop, the producer is the person who makes the beat. And the producer is typically lower in the pecking order than the rapper. And the, traditionally, the producer doesn't have the same kind of cred, right? The producer is more, is less public facing as someone working in the industry. So the idea that a producer is trying to transform into a rapper is back then and even now is a fairly rare thing. And so part of what you see in those scenes is him trying to switch roles. Like, oh, this guy in the polo shirt who makes beats now wants to be out front as a rapper. And that took a little while for people to get used to. Yeah, it is. It's that funny thing. It's sort of quite old-fashioned in a way. And you you sense that, Khalifa, in that kind of the label setup as well. You know, I guess with, you know, Def Jam, with Rockefeller, with Raucous, all these different these different labels, obviously with different artists, different roster, kind of different systems, and they're known for different things. It struck me as being quite a strict system. I guess like any like mainstream rock music kind of was in those in those days as well. So many people, you know, there are so many bands that weren't signed that might have gone on to do amazing, amazing things. But it seems like kind of Kanye sort of rode rode above that. I mean, it's but it seemed quite a sort of collegiate system. It seemed like a bit of an old boys network. Some of that stuff, you know. Well, yeah, and it was also a question of branding right at one point in the documentary he says what you gonna hold that against me because i ain't killed nobody and, and so this idea that like oh is he not tough enough to really be a rapper and and for some of these labels it's, it's a little bit as if a movie director wants to become an action star 
And everyone's kind of like, I don't know if you have the muscles to be an action star. You may understand how these how this product is made, but that doesn't necessarily mean you get to be out front. And I think, you know, again, you know, there is a certain amount of clannishness and there's a certain amount of like paying your dues and an idea that people have expectations of what a rapper is supposed to be. And I wouldn't blame people. I'm always I'm always leery, especially of journalists who think that they know better than record company executives what's going to sell, right? Like, that's a hard job. And the fact is, yeah, we hadn't seen a successful rapper like Kanye before him. We haven't seen one since. He really was unusual. And yes, it took it took someone with some vision to try and figure out like, oh yes, he could be something totally different. He could create his own category really of music where he's neither, right? He's neither, he's not exactly the so-called gangster rap that he was talking about being. He's not exactly conscious, right? In, in, in the way that he's kind of old fashioned and idealistic. He really is something else. And I think the thing that I, as someone who like loved those early mixtapes, loved his first album, the thing that I wouldn't have been able to predict was how he would be able to keep transforming over the years and have so many different approaches, so many different styles. The music he's making now doesn't sound like the music that he was making 20 years ago. And, you know, that's the thing that's really hard to predict. Yeah, he would have still been a great performer and a great artist if he just had that one hit album which is such a good album. I mean, you wrote in uh, your your Guardian piece actually about progressive hip hop and you kind of threw Lauren Hill in the mix there. Now, now Lauren Hill's made one great and it is an excellent kind of touchstone record, but that's sort of it's got its kind of dinner jazz moments, which is maybe one of its reasons for being so successful. It's got its lovely new soul moments and stuff like that. But yeah, Kanye, people kind of like to cock a snook at Kanye West, I suppose. But look at that back catalogue and considering the light in which he shines, I guess. That's the flip side, right? I'm sure there's people now who think about Kanye first as like the inventor of Yeezys and they've been following his like presidential run and his marriage to Kim Kardashian and his, you know, seeing him on TMZ. I'm sure there's people who are fairly familiar with his recent antics who don't even know that much about his back catalog and who might be shocked if they go back and listen to the college dropout by how charming it is. And it, it sounds, it, you know, to my ears, it still sounds a little bit homemade. There's a couple moments on there, it, whether it's uh, on the beats or the way the vocals are recorded, where it almost sounds like the first take. It sounds kind of notably imperfect. There's ways in which he's, he, he'll kind of squeeze a couple extra syllables where it seems like they don't belong, as if he has all this stuff that he wants to tell you and he's just it's all kind of pouring out of him um so i think that really is a really important album for anyone who not just anyone who loves kanye but for anyone who's a little bit perplexed by the kanye phenomenon and wants to figure out why so many other people love kanye um you know spending an hour listening to that that first album is a, a better argument than any argument i could make <laughs> well you've done it beautifully Khalifa, but i'm going to ask you the 64 million dollar question like how do we get how do we get from that to the antics to endorsing Trump to kind of doing his own kind of quasi presidential bid. Are these just kind of kind of the the, the musings of are these the sort of moments where of the emperor's new clothes for, for an, an artist of the sort of wealth and stature and fame as Kanye West, who, who also has professed to have the odd mental scrape now and again? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you never want to diagnose someone from afar. But what you can say is that, you know, he is restless and imaginative and creative, right? You think of him in the tradition of 
of Prince or, or Bob Dylan or Joni Mitchell or any of these great artists who were just like looking for new things to do and have new ideas and they're trying different things. And, you know, for him, that, that ambition stretches beyond music, right? So he's like, I've got a vision for fashion. And, and, and I've got to say, when he first started talking about like, yeah, I'm going to go into fashion, I think a lot of people were chortling and he had tremendous success going into fashion, right? And so once you've done that in music and you've done that in fashion, both times in the face of, of widespread disbelief and derision, well, then it makes sense that you've got to think like, wow, I guess I can do anything I, I put my mind to. And, you know, it makes sense that not all of them will be equally fruitful. But I think my rule of thumb when I'm looking at a body of work is just to count the best of it. And if you look at the best of what Kanye has done over the years, it's incredibly impressive. Khalifa, I think we managed to do it. Like some sort of mad musical NASCAR race we got from 1982 <laughs> and the Bronx and Fab Five Freddy to and Grandmaster Flash to Kanye and Make America Great Again and all the rest of it. We've managed to do it, I think, with your amazing help. Thank you very much indeed, Khalifa Sane, for joining me on the programme, the Netflix documentary Genius and Sophie Bramley's book of photography, Yo! The Early Days of Hip Hop, 1982-84, to 84, are both out now. And Khalifa's own book, Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres, is also worth checking out. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and our sound engineer is Steph Chungu. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bounds, thank you for tuning in. Come on.